Good morning. I bet I didn't switch it. There we go. Good morning. Welcome to Southfield today. Every once in a while, you may wonder why, 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 why does this church not purchase nice, soft, comfy, comfy chairs? <laughs> because once a year, we really need these chairs. <laughs> You lost an hour's sleep last night. The pastor's ultimate challenge. Can he keep a group of people awake for a half hour on a, on a day that they've lost an hour's sleep? But I'm sure we'll do a good job today. It's great to have you with us today. We, we have actually some, some really special guests here today. You may not know it, but um, uh, Chris and Ruth Rock, Hocker have a, have a pair of kids sitting with them today that they had a, had a history with, and the kids are back today. So their names are Amelia and, and Emilio, and to go easier, Amelia and Milo. So good to welcome them today. Good to have them and good to have you as well. Very, very fun uh, the way God uses, uses our people in order to, to reach out into the world and bring children to God and bring yeah. children into their family. I love that. I love that so much. So uh, I don't know what your week was like. I know your week was bizarre. My, my week was <clears throat> super bizarre. Not to get all crazy into it, but uh, two, two big things happened this week. Monday, I was out to eat with my wife and my son, which is weird to say, <laughs> but uh, we were getting burritos, and we're sitting there, and I mean, Emmett wasn't eating a burrito, not yet, but uh, <laughs> Riley and I are eating burritos, and I was moving some food from one side of my mouth to the other, and I somehow bit a hole in my tongue. He okay, didn't know this. I didn't this. know that. He didn't oh. know this. So Monday, and as, as we're sitting there in oh. this restaurant. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you you want to see it? No. I don't look at pain. I don't like pain. Ew. Yeah. Uh, so I bit a hole in my tongue, oh. and I haven't been able to eat. So Friday, I finally, finally got diet. my meals in. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, the belt loops are, are a little tighter together. But needless to say, I was, I need oh. to say this carefully. I was looking forward to uh, eating like a total slob this weekend because Riley and Emmett currently are in the air flying back from Georgia because um, they went down to see, their, uh, to see some family and, and spend some time at a, a cousin's baby shower. And so I was like, yes, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, while I'm going to miss them dearly, I'm going to eat like just total junk food. I'm going to live it up and I'm going to enjoy it. You know, Riley's not going to be there to tell me that I have to eat spinach. She's not there to like put peppers in the sausage. I just want the sausage. So I'm like, this is going to be amazing. And then I bite a hole in my tongue and I can't eat anything. So, oh. so there's God just being like, boink. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Fun week. Fun week. Uh, let's just close in prayer. <laughs> I, I'm not going to make it. I'm yeah. not going to make it. Oh, my word. You sure you don't want to see it? His, no. Has talking <laughs> gone well? Uh, talking was hard this week. Because you kind of for a living. Talking was hard this week. Yep. There oh. was a point on Tuesday. Uh, no, I'm going to gross everybody out. We're oh. gonna. <laughs> Can I go home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mouth got really dry on Tuesday afternoon, like by eighth hour. So I talked all day, and uh, yeah, my mouth got really dry. And apparently, I left my tongue on the roof of my mouth for too long. And when I went to go talk, it ripped again. So oh, it was just bad. It's a bad week. It's a bad week for the tongue. But that's okay. Let's stop talking about tongues. Let's start talking about quests. Every week we get a weekend update. <laughs> I'm never asking you about your week again. I am so it's disturbed. Good idea. It's a good I am idea. so disturbed. No, but in that weekend update, the very first thing I'm looking for is... This is not an act. I feel <laughs> sick. Go ahead. Is small group hmm. leaders for Quest. Uh, again, we're setting the goal at 50, because that gives us an opportunity to serve a ton of kids 
um, not just in the Southfield family, our Southfield family, but in the community. And um, again, you, you'll have a, a group of about seven or eight kids that you'll get to minister, th minister to throughout the week and watch them play games and, and get to know them really well. And hopefully that relationship, as you said from your experience, will build not just that week and that you get to be with them um, during camp, but afterwards as well. Um, that is the last week of June, so if you have that time in your schedule and, or you've been feeling that prompting for a while, you can check out all the details on our website or through the update, and the, the link will take you to a, a spot just to request um, some more information so that if you're interested in, in um, learning about small group leading, you, you don't click the link and automatically you know, sign in blood from your tongue. Um, no, it's going to give you information about, about what that week's going to look like, and then we'll reach out and contact you as the, the date gets closer to, to figure out um, the, the right role and everything. So please, if, if you are willing and able, um, <laughs> this isn't going to work, I can't stop looking at your mouth. Yeah. Keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> Sign up for small group leading. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. Oh, my word. I was really, really, this is so cool. So we're doing this uh, parent night out at the end of the month to go along with going deeper, to go along with serving other people, serving people beyond us. And, um, and, and that's started to get advertised now into the community a little bit in a newsletter through the school and whatever. And, and we got an email, I think it was yesterday, yesterday or the day before from a mom who asked, so is there gonna be the opportunity for kids with special needs to be, to be taken care of, to be watched? And, uh, and, and in the email, she said, we've basically not been out on a date since 2013. And, and so just if, if that's what the night is all about, the night is totally worth it to be able to give somebody a chance to just in, enjoy being together. Uh, it's really huge, really, really huge. Yeah. So every time that update comes, I just want to remind you again of all the stuff at the top. You can click every week and read and see the main scripture passages we'll be looking through. You can click listen, which takes you to dwell. So you can listen to that. Today we have a, a ton of scripture passages. And so to be able to look at them ahead of time really helps. Also, you have the songs there, both in, both in Spotify and the video on YouTube. And talking to somebody this week who said, you know, I, I, I just get that thing playing. And I, I get the, the song in my head and in my heart, even, even before I show up to church. So and then you have that one called um, Bible.com events. If you were to go there, that actually gives you a place that you can, you can keep notes and, and some of the other links are there all the time. So, so you have those things, make sure, make sure that you check those out uh, and, and use, them, use them regularly. They're set up for you every week. Uh, believe it or not, we are down to the final two lessons involved in our, in our Going Deeper series. We're going to be talking about we love the people of God, we love the church, and we love the mission of God. We love the, the purpose for which God has left us here on this earth to reach lost people for him and to serve our world. And so you know by now that throughout the whole series, we've been, we've been taking time every week to look at a, a classic heresy. A heresy, again, is this isn't just a, a biblical disagreement. This is, this is a person who takes a, a thought, creates an idea that is, that is counter to the true nature and character of God. It's counter to the true nature and character of the gospel. Uh, if they were followed to their logical conclusion, a person would not know the God of heaven and they would not be able to come into a, a relationship with God. So uh, I, I was looking for one 
in particular that's related to the church itself, to, you know, to this idea of, of being a gathered people. And, and I came across this one, and, and it's kind of funny. I, I'm not going to have you pronounce some of these today, okay? Just it's not worth the, the tongue exercise. Appreciate you. But um, incratitism. I had never heard of incratitism before. Kind of an interesting one. And again, the, the whole idea here is not so that you remember the name and you know it on the next quiz or something like that. It's, it's to get the broader idea of what's going on in these heresies because they, they appeared before and they'll appear again. They may not come, appear again with the same label, but, but you're going to see this kind of thinking just continue throughout Christianity. It's sad that we, we just keep kind of going back to the same bad playbook. Yeah, my... Your phone listens to you. I, mm. I, I'm sure that you've gotten targeted ads from you know a thought or a conversation that you've been having with someone. You pull, you know you pull up the phone, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you're like, "This is creepy. This is scary." Um, Instagram doesn't give me ads because I don't go on Instagram very often. They're like, yeah, "It's not worth it." Um, but instead, <laughs> they target videos, and I I legitimately in my in my Instagram feed, the suggestions there were a couple of things talking about heresies. Are you no joke, oh no joke. Word. So I'm getting, I'm getting like these little, you know, suggested Christian page followers. I'm not getting suggested heresies to follow. Right, right, Just right, people right. talking about heresies. <laughs> and there was someone who gave a, a really cool illustration this week. Um, it's not a new one, but mm-hmm. people who look for counterfeits um, if, in, the, in the government, they're looking for counterfeit monies. They don't study the counterfeits because counterfeits are going to look different every single time. What they study inside and out every single day is our currency. Mm-hmm. They study it until they know exactly how much, it, how much it weighs, how it feels, how it looks, so that when a counterfeit comes along, they look and they know right away something is up. They mm-hmm. might not know the exact problem, right. but they know right away something doesn't feel right about this. Yeah. And I, f- I think that this is a, it's a perfect description of what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. We're studying all these things that, you know, I haven't heard of these terms before, but mm-hmm. the idea is if you study the Bible enough and you are strong in, in the Word, you're going to hear some of these things come up in culture and be like, you know, I, I, don't, I might not know exactly what's wrong about this, but I know something's wrong. I know something is up. Knowing the truth helps you to smell falsehood, yeah. and, it, and it really helps you to grow, to grow in discernment, to be able to recognize that when it, even, you may not completely know, that's absolutely wrong, but you just, you smell it enough to go, something's not yeah. right here, something doesn't, something doesn't ring true, yeah. exactly. So, incratitism, so again, a few weird words here. Um, it's, it, the Greek word, root word here is enkratia. And incratia basically means continence. So you understand what incontinence is, the inability to control. Continence is control or self-control. These people believe that self-control, extreme self-control, was necessary for salvation. If you did not have extreme self-control, you could not have a relationship with God. So there's specific things. They forbid any drinking of alcohol. They forbid any drinking of meat, and they forbid having sex. In fact, they forbid being married, which I don't know how they thought that was going to work out generationally. I, don't, I guess they thought it was a one and done. You know, we're it, and we're going home to heaven. They taught that the people of God were to be married to God and not to each other. So you were not to get married. You were not to have sex. You weren't to eat meat. You weren't to drink alcohol. Wow. 
This is what it's you did in order to earn your salvation. It was requirement for salvation. And they, they based this off some teachings they had of the story of Adam and Eve, as well as some of the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Although, interestingly, they ultimately even deny Paul altogether. They want nothing to do with the teachings of Paul. It's so confusing. But part of the reason they might have gotten frustrated with Paul is because it's believed that they're the ones that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. So why don't you go ahead and read that passage for us? Yeah, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. I mean, it seems like Paul is hitting these people. Yeah. I, I never even thought about really forbid people to marry. What yeah. that, what's that all about? So, and Paul is trying to help us to understand, again, with the other heresies we've studied, there are people who believe that everything physical is evil. Everything physical evil, only the spirit is good. And Paul's saying, no, all things are good. It's what we do with the things that's the sin. It's what we do with the things, but, but all things have goodness in and of themselves. So um, part of the reason I raised this one today is because it's the opposite of the extreme that we saw last week. Last week, we, we saw antinomianism. Antinomianism believes that once you're a believer, there is no further obeying to be done. Live freely. Do what you want. And they, if, if they were to say it literally, they'd say, I am saved from hell so I can live like hell. You know, I, I can, I, I'm saved from going to hell so I can do whatever I want. Grace covers everything. And on the other side, you have legalism. And legalism says, here are the rules that have to be followed in order to have a relationship with God. Now, some of us came from legalistic church backgrounds. There's, there's light legalism and extreme legalism. Light legalism basically says, these are the rules of our club, follow them or we won't like you. <laughs> extreme legalism says, follow these rules or you will either not be able to obtain the salvation, you will not be able to keep salvation, you'll lose your salvation if you don't follow these particular rules. So both of these extremes are a problem. When you smell antinomianism, when you smell legalism, you know that what someone is leaning into is a heresy and that is to be avoided. Take you back to the book again. We're just doing the same book last week, this week, next week. I love this book. It's called An Infinite Journey, written by a man named Andrew Jones, and, he, and the subtitle is Growing Toward Christlikeness. So it helps us to understand that, that journey. I think, I think the diagram, as I talk to my different groups throughout the week, the diagram of justification, sanctification, glorification really help people to understand the concept of, I have been saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved, and that is our salvation. So, thanks so much. Why don't you go sit down and rest? <laughs> okay? Yikes. We love the people of God. We love the people of God. The people of God is a reference to the church. Uh, when you look at the church in, in classic theology and doctrine, uh, we're, we're talking about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, and it's everything from studying uh, the identity, the nature of the church, to the structure of the church, to the leadership of the church. Everything about ecclesiology is an understanding of the church. 
I got to tell you, this particular message, probably the last couple of them, when I've approached it, I've gone, man, where do I go with this? Because there is, there is so much to be said in this particular topic. There are so many directions that we could cover when we talk about the church. I've had a, I've had a long-time love relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ. God placed a love in my heart for the church all the way back to my childhood. I was never a kid who said, oh no, we got to go to church today. I was always excited to be there, and I've been excited throughout my life to be a part of the family of God. I love the fact that God has used the church and continues to use the church to draw lost people to himself and to help people grow in a relationship with God. So as I looked at it, I was like, you know, here's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at some of the metaphors. There are five major metaphors used to describe the church to help us to understand the nature and the character of the church. Five major metaphors in the Word of God. So we're going to, we're going to look at those today just to get a better sense of what is this calling God has placed on us as a church. Now, every once in a while, I throw out a word like metaphor, and for some of you, you're in English class, so you could give us a definition. For others of you, you're about 45 years removed from English class, and you're like, metaphor. I remember something about it. And yeah, you remember similes and metaphors. Similes use like or as in order to make a comparison. Metaphors don't use like or as. I'll give you a definition. A metaphor is a figure of speech that describes an object or action in a way that isn't literally true, but it helps explain an idea or make a comparison. So when Jesus says, I am the door, we don't look over there and say, look, Jesus, Jesus is in the room. No, we understand that, that he's, making, he's making an analogy here. It's a metaphor. And he's saying, I am a door. And so we look at the door and we say, well, what's that all about? A door opens to let people in. We start looking at the metaphor to try to understand what he's saying. If we took a metaphor literally, it would often sound crazy. It's raining cats and dogs. Ever seen cats and dogs flying out of the sky? I'm afraid to say that out loud because I know one of you have. But anyway, for, for the most normal people, yes, we've only seen rain and snow, sleet and hail fall from the sky. We haven't seen cats and dogs falling from the sky. But when I say it, you immediately know what I'm talking about. It's raining like crazy. It's raining like crazy. That's a metaphor. A metaphor gives us a picture. It helps us to understand something more clearly. Now, there are some guides we need to understand for unpacking biblical metaphors. Uh, I'm going to give you three today. There are probably a few more, but I'm going to give you three. The first is just the understanding of a metaphor. A metaphor compares something unknown to, with something that is known. So time and time again, Jesus is going to say, the kingdom of heaven is like and sometimes he's using a simile, and sometimes he's using a metaphor, but he's, he's talking about something that, that we have no concept of. We're, we're trying to figure it out, and he'll give us a picture. He'll give us an idea to say, well, let, let, me, let me give you a point of comparison so you can get a, a taste of what this is all about. So you're taking something that is unknown, and you're comparing it to something that is known. The meaning is guided by context. Here's the problem with metaphors, and especially when Christians run across metaphors in the Bible, they try to bleed the metaphor for everything it's worth. 
Jesus says, I am the door. Oh, he has a crash bar. Jesus, so, so he's an easy escape. Uh, Jesus is gray. Jesus has, a, has an automatic closer, so if you don't get through in time, he'll close on you. Jesus has a lock on the outside. You better have a key. What's the key? Do you see how this can get a little wacky? But this is what we do. The Bible says you are the salt of the earth. People look at salt, and they start just draining everything. Well, Christianity must give you high blood pressure. You know, we start looking at all these things. Christian, every grain of salt is a little cube, so we have to be square for Jesus. You know, they just kind of go on and on and on and on and on, and that's not the intention of a metaphor. Though it is absolutely a blast to unpack it that way, it's not the point. The point is usually in Scripture. Usually, right there with the metaphor, Jesus or the writer will say a thing or two that'll help us to go, oh, that's where you're taking the metaphor. So it's always interpreted, it's always interpreted by the context, and we try to understand it in a limited sense, not bleed it for everything it's worth, but in a limited sense. The other thing is that the understanding I don't know how else to say it. It's, it's filtered through the ideal. So today, for example, we're going to talk about the church as a family. And some of you are going to go, my family is a cage of squirrels. <laughs> my family's nuts. I have one bad one. I don't need another one. I don't need it. Or, or when we, it's not an analogy or a metaphor, but when the Bible talks about God as a father, some people have had a horrible relationship with a father. And, and so they'll, they'll look at all the bad things about a father. Well, my father rejects me. My father shuns me. My father, my father ices me out. My father beats me. And they'll, and they'll say, see, that's what it... No. When we look at a biblical metaphor, unless it says so otherwise, it's intended to be the ideal. We don't look at the metaphor just through our experience. We look at it through what would the ideal be because God's trying to get across an ideal and not the brokenness of the sinful world. So let me give you five of them. And boy, this one, as a 60-year-old, um, you know, if you filter this the wrong way, you could go crazy. The church is a body. The body's falling apart. The body doesn't work as well. The body can't sleep through the night. Uh, all these things. No, not at all. The church is a body. It's a beautiful beautiful, beautiful body. It's a perfect body, perfect form, everything functioning absolutely beautifully. Now, with each of these, I want to go ahead and give you the root word, and I want to give it to you because it's, it's kind of interesting to see the words that are used originally. Every time Paul talks about the church as a body, he uses the same word again and again and again. It's the Greek word soma. He keeps using that word again and again and again, and he's talking literally about a physical body. The body of an animal, the body of a plant, the body of a, of a planet, the body of a person. He's talking about a, a physical entity. So he's saying, when you look at this analogy, you can look at a person and it gives you an idea of what the church is all about and how the church functions. He says the church is a body. Now, now this one's really interesting because when we look at that in the context of Romans 12, we see what I was talking about, that you can't just, you can't just start looking at the body and, and unpacking it forever everything you imagine it to be. But right there in Scripture, Paul's going to start saying, this is the way in which the church is like a body. And he's going to limit it. He's going to limit our understanding of the metaphor. Just as each of us has one body with many members. So look at your body right now. 
You got fingers, you got toes, you got nose, you got, you got all these parts, right? Many members, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all function the same. So in Christ, we who are, who are we who are so in Christ tongue, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him prophesy in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do so cheerfully. So he, so he says, you have one body, you have a bunch of parts, and then he starts saying, and the parts are represented by all the different giftedness in the body of Christ. We have this, this unity of single body and yet diversity of parts in the body of Christ. First Corinthians chapter, Paul says, dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, now, in this passage, he's talking about meat offered to idols and whether you should eat it or whether you should not eat it and what all's going on there. He says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. If not, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? So here he's talking about meat offering to idols, and now he starts talking about communion. And he says, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, Christ, and we are many form one body, and we partake of the one loaf, Christ. So he's, he's kind of playing out this analogy when he's talking about idolatry and eating, eating food sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians 12, just as one, just as one body, though one, just as the body, though one has many parts, but it has many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So many parts, one body, and this is the way the family of God works. Now you are the body of Christ. Now he goes right to it. It's not just that you're a body, but you are Christ's body. And each one of you is a part of it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ could be built up. So he's actually talking about the exercise we do, the building up, the encouragement that happens uh, through people that God has given to the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Two more. We are members of his body. And then in Colossians, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So he says, first of all, church, your body, one body, many parts. What are the implications? What does this mean for us? Well, I already said it. The body has many parts, and every part is essential. Every part. There is not one part that matters more than the other. There's not one part that's more essential than the other. Every part of the body is essential, and every part of the body works together. I'm going to the doctor on Tuesday for that good old-fashioned annual physical to learn why do some parts of the body want to work together, and why do some of the parts of the body want to rebel. When the body is working well, it all functions together in this body analogy, we see unity amid diversity. We see that there are a whole bunch of different parts. The church of Christ isn't an eyeball rolling down the street or a foot hopping along the path. It's all the parts. There's unity among tremendous diversity, and then we can't miss it. Christ is always the head. 
Nobody ever takes the place of the head. The head is Christ. Our direction, everything about us flows from Christ. So beautiful, beautiful analogy. I think, I think one of the practical uh, outworkings of this Years ago, I heard of something called either gift projection or passion projection. This is what this looks like. You are gifted in a particular way in the body of Christ. You have a particular passion in the body of Christ. It matters to you greatly. And you, for the life of you, can't understand why it doesn't matter to everybody. Why isn't everybody as psyched about it as you are? Why isn't everybody as as pumped about it as you are? And what starts to happen is we look at other people and they're not, as, they're not as passionate about our passion as we're passionate about our passion. And so we start to look and say, hmm, they're just not as godly as I am. If they love God, they'd have compassion. If they love God, they'd have courage. If they love God, they'd care about what I care about. And God says that is not the way the body works. In the body, I have toes, and I have heels, and I have knees, and I have elbows, and I have fingers and fingernails and ears. I have all kinds of different parts, and it's all supposed to work together. All the pieces come together to function beautifully. So when we do that gift projection, we're actually rejecting rejecting the spirit of Scripture, that we are a body, unity amid tremendous diversity. The church is a body. The church is also Christ's bride. For the word bride, uh, Paul and others use three different words. Uh, One refers to bride, one refers to a female, a woman, or a married woman, and one refers to a virgin who is chaste and pure. So all these different words are used to talk about Christ, or us as the bride of Christ. In Revelation 19, beautiful scene. I heard what sounded like a multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride, his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So already we're seeing something in the bride analogy about purity. Something about purity in the bride analogy. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul starts by saying, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband. I promised you to Christ so that I might present you to him as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, your mind somehow led astray from your devotion to Christ. He says, if someone preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus I preach, if someone preaches a different spirit other than the spirit I preach, if someone preaches a gospel other than the gospel I preach, y'all are intrigued by it. What's wrong with you? That's what he's saying. Why are you intrigued by a different gospel? Why are you intrigued by a different Christ? I promised you to one Christ to be pure and exclusively for him. Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two become one flesh. And I love the way Paul says that this is a profound mystery. And that's some of the beauty of marriage. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. And so marriage has this opportunity to show off the relationship of Christ in the church even without words. What are the implications? Purity. 
Christ calls his church to be pure, like a pure virgin. Oneness, that, we, that we're one in our marriage relationship, not two people doing their own thing. Exclusivity, not Jesus and. It's Jesus only. We are his, and it really elevates marriage. It elevates marriage. Is there any wonder that Satan would be so bent on destroying marriage? Because it's intended as the picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. The church is a bride. Third, we see the church is a family. Whole ton of words here. We have pater, mater, weos, adelphos, thugar, thugater. You're going to start calling your sister thugater. Doesn't that sound, oh, you know, adelphe. These are all words that refer to father, mother, son, brother, daughter, sister. And then you have oikeos ha theos and oikeos ha pistis. And that's the household of God and the household of faith. He's referring to family. We are a family together. Second Corinthians chapter 6, 18, he actually quotes another passage of scripture where God says to us, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and you will be my daughters. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Jesus is among his disciples, his mother and brothers come to him and they're, they're kind of longing for him to be with them and all that sort of thing. And, and Jesus just said and says, here is my father, here is my mother, here is my brother, here are my sisters. He starts pointing the disciples, he starts pointing to his followers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, is my sister, is my mother. Ephesians 2.19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You're members of his family. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everybody. But he says, especially to those who are part of the family of God. He points it out. He says, hey, don't ignore the people in need in the family of God. What are the implications of, of familyhood when it comes to the church? One, God's our father. Never ignore that. God is a loving and good father, a perfect father. When we're looking for an example of father, we look to him to understand fatherhood. We're to reflect our father. You're supposed to be just like dad. Be holy because I am holy. He says all these different things. It says, this is the way I am. This is how I expect you to be. He says, reflect the nature of your father in this family. You cannot ignore the fact that there is a relational component in the church the church is not a video camera and a comfortable couch where we all watch a message and live separately. The church is a family, people functioning together. There's a relational component of brother and sister together in the family of God. Further, I think what Paul is saying is congratulations, you have a family redeemed. Your family of origin may stink like rotten fish, but your family redeemed is now your new family. And I got to tell you, for me, I have people that I point to and go, there's my father, there's my mother, there's my sister, there's my brother. These are the people who have become my redeemed family. And I love having a redeemed family. And our family is there for support and challenge. Or two other words I might use here is um, for comfort and correction. Your family is there to help you through the hard time. And folks, your family is there to say, what in the world are you doing? That's what the Church of Jesus Christ does. We challenge people to take their next life-changing step toward becoming like Jesus together. We challenge them. And sometimes that challenge involves, are, are, are you serious? That looks nothing like Jesus. i got to admit to you, people don't like hearing that. They only ever want to hear, oh, your poopy smells so nice. 
you know? And uh, sometimes we got to say, no, it don't. It just plain stinks. Just plain stinks. And, and what are you doing? What are you doing? And it is a loving act. It's a loving act to help a person understand that they're not living in obedience to Christ. The church is a family. Bible also says the church is God's house. So a little different analogy. Here he's not talking about family. Here he's literally talking about it's an oikos. It's not a yogurt. It's actually the Greek word for house, okay? A house. I don't know why they named the yogurt house. But anyway, you're eating your house, your dwelling place, your abode, the seat, the site where you live. And you have these beautiful passages of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 3. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews goes on this, on kind of this cool rant about, you know, Moses was involved in building the house, but Jesus came along and he's the owner and the builder of the house. And Jesus replaces Moses as the owner of the house. And, and you, are, you are God's house. You're the house built uh, in order to be the, the, the dwelling place of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, although I hope to come soon, I'm writing these instructions that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's house. He says, this is, this is, how, we, this is how it works in this house. Have you ever said that in your family? This is how it works in this house. I don't care what the Smiths do. I don't care what the Joneses do. This is how it works in this house. Right? That's what Paul's saying there. First Peter chapter 4, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's house. He says, hey, the, often when, when culture goes to chaos, it's not because of what the world is doing, it's because of what the church is doing. He says judgment begins with the house of God, and if it begins there, what's going to be happening to the rest of the world? Implications of being God's house? We're the dwelling place of God. God comes home to live with his people we're a family in this house, and yes, there are expectations of conduct within the family of God, within his household. The church is God's house. And then finally, the final uh, metaphor is the church is God's temple. It's God's temple. And he actually uses several different words in order to talk about the temple. He talks about the foundation, talks about the cornerstone, talks about being a holy temple, and he talks about us being living stones who build this temple together. So, Again, so that we see Scripture, Ephesians 2 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So there's the foundation. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, and the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this is beautiful. And you may recall 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says, you are, you are the temple of God. And in it, he's referring to us as individuals. You're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But in Ephesians chapter 2, as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, collectively, you are the dwelling place of God. God comes. When we gather, God is here with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. There is a dwelling of God, a special dwelling of God that takes place when God's people are gathered. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else built on it. And each one should take care as they're building. And he talks about the different kind of, of building that takes place as we're building this particular beautiful temple. He says, don't you know? that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you 
together are that temple. He, he shares a warning here. Folks, don't mess around with the church of Jesus Christ. Don't mess around with the church of Jesus Christ. Don't mess around with the temple. What are the implications? We are the dwelling place of God. I've been listening through Leviticus and Numbers and, and the idea that God would come and sit between the wings of the cherubim or that the, the cloud would descend over the tabernacle. God now dwells in you. And God now dwells in us collectively. We are that temple, which means everything we do is an act of constant worship. Whatever you're doing, it's an act of constant. You don't, you don't come worship for an hour and walk away. You are God's temple, individually and collectively. So everything you do is an act of constant worship. There is a strong foundation laid in Christ, a beautiful cornerstone. It is a lasting structure. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And God always prioritizes bodies over buildings. Bodies matter to God. Bodies are where he dwells. Not in... Not in drywall and steel, but in human flesh. The church is God's temple. The church is not a place. It is a redeemed, gathered people. The church is not a program. It is a passion-driven mission. The church is a body the church is a temple, the church is a home, the church is a family, and the church is a bride waiting for her groom to appear on the clouds and call her home. And until then, we wait expectantly, we work tirelessly, and we worship wholeheartedly. In the words of that beloved disciple of, of Jesus, John himself, come quickly, Lord. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come now. Take us home. We're ready. Father God in heaven, I pray that we would appreciate your church, your bride, your home, your building, your temple. Pray that we'd have a greater understanding of what it means to be a body that functions together in unity while incredibly diverse. That we would do what we need to to protect your church. That we would care for each other by comforting each other as well as correcting each other when needed. Grow us as a church, we pray. Grow us deeply, deeply into you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Each week for communion... Whoops. You told the woman, That's honey. okay. That's not, uh, each week during communion, we've been uh, looking at a video that leads us through our Lenten journey, so let's take a look at this one right now. You told the woman on the other side of the tracks, the one we work so hard to step around, that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And for those who seek this, there is living water, which quenches the thirst of the soul. Yes, through this broken woman from the wrong family, the wrong town, who'd sought to drink from all the wrong wells. We learned a desperate truth about ourselves that we hadn't come to terms with yet. Our souls are the parched and dusty land of the wilderness. Our wells are the beds of all the wrong passions. And our desires and dreams will always leave us thirsting until we drink from the water of the one 
living Christ, who is Jesus. Amen. I get to watch those videos about four or five or six times. And so I don't know if you caught these words, but I want you to hear them again. We learned a desperate truth about ourselves that we hadn't come to terms with yet. Our souls are the parched and dusty land of the wilderness. Think about that for a moment. Prior to Christ, we are dry and dusty, just thirsty for water. Our wells, the place we turn to for water naturally, are the beds of all the wrong passions. We think our desire is going to lead to quench thirst and it only makes us drier and longing for more. And our desires and dreams will always leave us thirsting until we drink from the water of the one living Christ who is Jesus. And that's why we celebrate communion, to be reminded that we no longer turn to our, to our dust bowl wells, to be reminded that our souls do not have to be dry but to remember that there was a day that an offer of living water was made to us and we reached out and we took the cup and we took a big drink. So this morning, as we sing, let's walk to communion at the front and the back of the room, gluten-free on either side of the stage. I'm curious, did you pick that song knowing today was a time change? <laughs> nice theme, nice theme. Awake my soul, I've lost an hour and I need to wake up. Give me some spiritual coffee and wake me up. So many of us, are, we're just walking through a life sound asleep and God wants us to wake up to him. So when we do a day like today, five different analogies, I don't know about you, but like getting a handle on five things can be about three more than I can take with me. So focus on one this week. Just, just zero in on one. Maybe you'll focus on yourself as the bride of Christ. And what does that mean? Maybe it'll mean this week that you'll be conscious of purity, that you'll be conscious of, I'm exclusively Christ. My heart belongs to no one else. I'm not going to cheat. I'm all his and his alone. Maybe you'll choose to focus this week on being part of the body. And you'll think about your part in the body. What is my gift? What is it that, that I bring to this spiritual table? What, what's the thing I'm supposed to be doing? Maybe to be focusing and saying, I've been frustrated that other people aren't as psyched about my area as I am. And instead we'll turn and say, I'm grateful for all the parts of the body and not just the part I play. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll turn your mind a little bit to those structure pictures, that you're the house of God, that you're the temple of God. That when two believers are standing together talking, God is right there among them. Would you take a moment this week to be conscious of that? Wow, just stop and think. God's here right now. This isn't, this isn't just us. This isn't just us. It's us with them together. So, so take these analogies and just, just pull a little bit on one or the other and, and try to figure out uh, where is it that I stand in this. And if I can give you any piece of advice this week, uh, probably the most important, don't bite your tongue. <laughs> Have a great week. <laughs>